0: We've all heard the phrase jumping to conclusions, but have we really stopped to think about how that jumping happens? It's a phenomenon that we've all experienced practically on a daily basis. We see something, our brains quickly search for evidence that supports or refutes what we see, and we draw a conclusion. All of this happens in a split second without even being conscious of it. The end result is often an assumption which can lead to misunderstandings, communication breakdowns, or worse. Our question this episode, how can our understanding of thought processes help us to manage conflict? Welcome to episode 19 of How Can I Say This, where we talk about how to find the right words when words escape us. I'm your host, Beth Bilo. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm really sorry that I missed sharing with you last week. I was sidelined with a cold, and I figured that you didn't want to hear me cough my way through an episode. Now that I'm feeling like myself again, I'm excited to share one of my favorite tools with you that will help you get a new perspective on communication challenges in your life. Before I jump in, though, I want to thank everyone who has written or called in with a communication question, who's listened to and shared these episodes, and who has subscribed or left a review or rating. Since we launched in September 2018, How Can I Say This has reached listeners in 32 countries and been downloaded more than 8,000 times. The top 10 countries where you're tuning in are the United States, Australia, Saudi Arabia, the United Kingdom, Canada, Germany, the Netherlands, Spain, Hong Kong, and New Zealand. It's what I love about being alive at this point in history. With a click of a mouse and in a matter of minutes and sometimes even seconds, we can share content across the globe. Thank you for being part of the global How Can I Say This community, and please keep your questions, shares, and reviews coming. Now, for that favorite tool I promised you. I first learned about the ladder of inference in 2012 when some colleagues and I were developing a leadership training for a team of nurses in a hospital. They wanted some strategies for dealing with conflict and miscommunications that didn't involve any complicated plans or lots of steps to remember. We decided to introduce this framework to them by way of encouraging them to look inward for sources of conflict and stop the communication dysfunction in its tracks. Since that time, I've shared this model with dozens of clients to help them step back and see where they're getting hung up on internal stories that cause stress and tension with others. The Ladder of Inference was first put forward by organizational psychologist Chris Argyris and popularized by Peter Senge, author of The Fifth Discipline, The Art and Practice of the Learning Organization. It's a tool by which we can think about the way we think. What does that mean? The ladder of inference outlines the mental steps we go through, often without consciously realizing it, to get from an observable fact to a judgment or action. Each step of the ladder, from the bottom to the top, represents a stage in our thinking process. I'm going to use a very simple scenario to lead us through the ladder so that you can get an idea of how it works. Let's imagine John has a co-worker named Mark, with whom he shares office space. The situation is that John is finding himself getting annoyed because he thinks that Mark is messy, so much so that John is distracted by items that aren't put away, papers that can't be found quickly, and he's worried that people who stop into their office will think he is the messy one. John's productivity is suffering, and he needs something to change. We start with the bottom rung of the ladder, which is the observable facts or reality. And believe it or not, this is where we sometimes get the most stuck. Why would that be? Because we've already climbed up the ladder a few rungs in our minds, all the way up to drawing a conclusion based on facts, and I'm using air quotes there, that we've gathered based on our biases and assumptions. As the saying goes, we jump to conclusions. Going back to our sample scenario, we learned that John walks into his shared office every day and sees piles of paper, extra shoes under the desk, yesterday's sandwich wrapper on the filing cabinet, and post-it notes all over the frame of Mark's computer screen. These are observable facts that would be recorded if I were to walk into the room with a video camera. The camera makes no judgment about what it means that there are paper piles or sandwich wrappers. It only records the what and where of the items in the office. It doesn't interpret the why. But human beings aren't cameras, are we? John is a human being, of course, and he has a history with Mark and opinions about how an office space should look. What the camera can't show is that John had a big project with Mark a few months ago, and because Mark was so disorganized, they ended up weeks behind schedule and disappointing the rest of their team. So when John sees the piles and the wrappers, his thoughts quickly go up the rungs of the ladder of inference. He immediately moves to the second rung, which is selecting specific data to interpret John selectively sees only that which reinforces his experience on that big project and affirms his already formed opinion that Mark is sloppy and disorganized. He does not see that Mark has acquired a shredder, a new box of file folders, or put an extra trash can by the door. John then moves to the next rung where he interprets the data that he's selected. He takes the data the piles, wrappers, shoes, and interprets the situation as a mess, with John as the cause of that mess. In basically the same breath, John then makes an assumption, which is our fourth rung on the ladder. He assumes something about Mark's intent. In this case, he assumes Mark is intentionally careless and doesn't take John's feelings into consideration. From here, John diagnoses the situation and draws a conclusion. Mark must be disorganized everywhere in his life, and it's hopeless to try to make him change. This leads John close to the top of the ladder and his resulting belief that Mark is disrespectful and not a good colleague, and he's not a team player. He doesn't care about their shared space. He doesn't care if he's productive or not, and he certainly has no regard for John or John's needs. John might even extend this belief to other people, thinking that if they also seem disorganized, that they must not respect or care about those around them. By now, John is on the final rung of the ladder, where he acts on everything that he's feeling. In this case, he avoids spending time at his desk, especially if Mark is around. He starts keeping track of every time Mark can't find an important document or if he's late to a meeting. He asks his boss if he can be moved to another project team because he needs a new challenge, or so he says. The first six rungs, from observable fact to the formation of a belief, can be climbed in a matter of a second. Especially once you've allowed things to escalate to the top and acted on your beliefs. When John embraces the belief that Mark is careless and not a team player, he will continually be scanning the environment for signs that that belief is true. The issue will extend beyond messy office space, with every little misstep Mark makes from not being prepared to a meeting to forgetting to lock the door at the end of the day becoming evidence that reinforces John's beliefs. That means that each piece of evidence takes John back to the first rung on the ladder. An unlocked office door is just an unlocked office door. But that observable fact becomes weighted down with meaning and interpretation when John considers it alongside all of the other filtered evidence that he's gathered. The truth is, Mark might have forgotten to lock the door one time out of a hundred. But that one time is enough for John to say, aha, see, I told you he was careless. As I said, we can move through those rungs of the ladder in seconds. Another everyday example is if your phone rings and you know who it is based on the caller ID. If it's Sally and you have tension with Sally, then the second you see her name pop up, your mind trips all the way from the phone is ringing to we're going to argue. This causes you not to answer the phone, instead giving Sally an opportunity to leave a message that says she's frustrated that she missed talking with you, which leads you to say, see, she's difficult. Once we recognize how easily and rapidly our thoughts escalate from fact to belief to action, we can start to put on the brakes sooner in the process and potentially avoid conflict. The first step is to recognize the biases and filters that we perceive reality through. It's nearly impossible to operate without any filters. We all have past experiences that lead us to draw conclusions about new or recurring situations. And sometimes that's helpful to us. It's not that we should never pay attention to our past and the lessons that we learned there. It's simply that we need to be aware of when that past is influencing our present in a way that prevents us from seeing what's really going on. In John's case, his past experience on that delayed project with Mark led him to think that Mark might be disorganized. So when he saw the mess in their office, he put the two things together and created a connection where there might not have been one. If he'd been able to just see the office for what it was, without playing the he messed up a big project movie in his head, John would have noticed the shredder the new filing folders, the extra trash can, and maybe he would have come to the conclusion that Mark was in the process of cleaning up the space. Asking Mark about those items is a very different conversation than one about paper piles and sandwich wrappers. Even without the shredder or other signs that Mark is cleaning up, being able to see the situation as a camera would see it also changes the conversation. John can also get curious about what could be the reason for the mess. Maybe Mark was in a hurry yesterday and didn't have time to clean up. Maybe he's overwhelmed in general and things are just piling up. Maybe he honestly doesn't notice, or he just thinks that it's organized chaos. Maybe he doesn't have enough places to put things away, so they spill out onto surfaces and onto the floor. So John can start asking himself, What are some of the possible reasons that the space could be messy? What would it mean to assume that Mark doesn't mean any harm? What if I assume best intent, that there's something going on that's outside of his control? What do I want to be different about the situation? From there, John can start the conversation from a place of curiosity, rather than assumptions or accusations. He might say to Mark, Hey, it's started to feel a little crowded in here to me because of the paper piles and the items that are left out. It'd be great to see what we can do to make more space in here. What do you think? If he wanted to directly address what he sees as a mess, he could say, Mark, I've noticed that I've not been able to focus lately because our space is a bit chaotic. I work better when things that aren't needed for the job are organized and put away you don't seem to be bothered by the chaos. I'm wondering if we could talk about what we both need to make our shared space work for both of us. And yes, I will admit, both of those suggested statements are hedging just a bit. They're taking it kind of from the side. Because we always have to ask ourselves, what would there be to gain by lashing out or trying to make the other person feel bad? When you consider how you'd want someone to bring up the same issue with you, if the shoe was on the other foot, then what would you want their attitude to be? Would you want them to try to knock you down a few pegs or make you feel bad? Or would you want them to try to understand what led to your behavior? By stepping back and noticing where your filters and biases are coming into play, it's more likely you'll be able to approach the conversation as a negotiation rather than a conflict. Here are some other ideas on how you can use the framework and concepts of the Ladder of Inference to get control of your own thought processes. Practice recognizing when your conclusions about someone or a situation are based on inferences rather than facts. Where are you making the leap from observable reality to an assumption or story? Work from the personal assumption that you don't have all the facts and may have blind spots that prevent you from accurately assessing a situation. Ask yourself, what am I not seeing? Or what else do I need to know before making a decision or drawing a conclusion? As you notice what conclusions you are drawing, make a habit of backtracking and identifying how you got there. What evidence do you have that supports your conclusion? What examples or data led you to a particular belief? Notice if that data is objective and complete, or if it's been filtered and selected because of confirmation biases that have you only seeing what affirms what you already believe. In a conversation with someone who has pushed your buttons, try to listen more than you talk and ask questions for clarification. Paraphrase what they share with you to make sure you understand their perspective. If appropriate, ask them to outline their own thought processes and be willing to share yours. Remember that each of us is carrying around and climbing our own ladder of inference. Just as you're drawing conclusions about another person based on history, they're drawing conclusions about you. It goes both ways. Through conversation, you're trying to figure out what ladder each of you has been climbing. My call to action for you is to begin the practice of noticing the data you rely on to draw conclusions, especially in situations where you feel stress or anxiety or tension or the potential for conflict. How close to reality is that data? Where might you be overlooking something important? Where are you selectively seeing or not seeing something that only serves to reinforce a bias or a closely held belief? If you just look at the facts, removing the story and emotion, how does that change the situation? What would happen if you assumed best intent on the part of the other person? Just this practice alone will go a long way in helping you to catch yourself before you go down a rabbit hole of assumptions and stress. One of the best questions you can ask yourself when you notice that situations have a tendency to go from zero to 60 in no time flat is, what information am I missing here? You can ask yourself that question and go back over the situation. Or you can ask someone else for help. Blind spots are called blind spots for a reason. We usually can't see them. Slowing down your thinking And asking others for their perspective can be useful strategies in keeping conflict to a minimum. I'm grateful to my coaching colleagues, Julie Davidson, Anya Jepsen, and Jill Sheldon, who introduced me to the Ladder of Inference framework and made me part of the team that created and delivered a training that explored it. They have been amazing thought partners over the past 10 years, and I'm constantly learning from them. May we all have such people in our lives who leave us smarter than they found us. I'll include links to the information on the Ladder of Inference on the episode webpage at HowCanISayThis.com. I hope you've learned something new, or if you already knew about the tool, that you've been reminded of some of the concepts that will support you in living into them more fully. I invite you to join me for upcoming episodes, including a conversation I'm really excited about with writer and activist Perker Palmer that I'll be posting in late January. I'll also be welcoming new and returning guests who will respond to your questions and offer us guidance for being more confident in our communication and our relationships. If you haven't already, I encourage you to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. Did you know that you can submit a communication question for a response on the podcast? I welcome your questions for inclusion in a future episode. You'll find the online submission form at HowCanIsayThis.com. You can also leave a text or a voicemail 24-7 at 562-704-6643. You'll find that number on the Submit a Question page on the website. And finally, you can send me your question directly to Beth at HowCanISayThis.com. And no matter how you decide to submit a question, you always have the choice to be completely anonymous if you like. You can also show your support of the podcast by sharing it with others, leaving a rating, or writing a review on whatever platform you get your podcasts from. You can find links that tell you how to subscribe and leave a review in the footer of any page at HowCanISayThis.com. I also welcome your feedback and your questions through the contact form on the website. I'd appreciate hearing from you about what you think of the podcast and topics that you would like to see covered in future episodes. This is Beth Velo, and you've been listening to How Can I Say This? Our podcast producer is Paul Messing, and our theme music is by Brett Anderson. Thanks for joining me today, and I invite you to take what you've learned here and use it to speak up, speak out, and speak courageously.